Welcome to the Maximus Podcast with your hosts, Joe Sabula and Bobby Maximus. Today's episode is brought to you by 10,000. For the absolute best in men's workout clothing, go to 10,000.cc. That's T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D.cc. Use the discount code MAXIMUS15. Also, by Lalo Tactical, home of the Maximus Grinder. L-A-L-O dot com. Use the discount code MAXIMUS50 for 50% off your order. Today, we bring you our interview with Andy Horowitz, a Hollywood producer and friend of the show. He's going to talk to us today about how our current situation has affected Hollywood, um, as well as his own fitness journey within the industry. So if you're ready for a peek behind the Hollywood curtain, stay tuned for our interview with Andy Horowitz. We always have people introduce themselves so you can tell your story. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about you, your career, and, and kind of what you're up to now. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll start at the beginning. You know, I, uh, I grew up in, in a small town called Agora Hills, which is like, um, like a half an hour outside of L.A. But I kind of always grew up in, in and around the entertainment business. My dad was a um, television producer and my grandfather was in the independent film side. So I always knew I wanted to be a, a movie producer uh, from the beginning. It was sort of the only path for me. So um, I also grew up surfing. So I've been a surfer since I was, you know, probably 12 years old. So when I graduated high school, uh, my goal was to try to find a film school in a place where I can keep surfing. That's all I really gave a shit about. So I went up to Santa Barbara and uh, did uh, a few years at the community college up there and then realized that there was a film school called the Brooks Institute of Photography that was right up there in Santa Barbara. So I transferred to there, got my BA in film and video production. But while I was going to film school, I was driving down to LA on the weekends and doing PA work on music videos and reality TV shows and really just whoever would hire me to, uh, to work on sets. And when I was in film school, I just sort of, produced everybody's movies. I, it was all I really wanted to do. But what I did while I was doing that was I took all of the classes. So I took screenwriting and directing and cinematography and editing just because a, a good producer needs to understand all of those things, you know, not quite as well as those people that are running those departments, but enough to be able to talk the talk and walk the walk. And as a producer, all of those people are reporting to you. So if you don't understand what they're doing and, and why they're doing what they're doing, you can't do your job appropriately as a producer. So I graduated film school and, you know, I'd produced a bunch of short films in film school. And one of the short films I did was at Sundance. And so when I graduated film school, of course, I thought to myself, like, everyone's going to want to hire me. I'm a big fucking deal. <laughs> I had a short film and at Sundance and, uh, you know, about three months after graduation, after about, you know, 50 resumes sent out and a hundred phone calls, I uh, didn't even get a single meeting. And so I started to realize like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, no one really cares, you know, what you did in film school when you're out in the real world. And, you know, yes, it's important for the experience and the process, but it doesn't really prepare you for working in the real world. Um, so I did what, what I always suggest everyone does in the film business, which is reach out to someone you know that's currently working in the film business. It's really sort of the only kind of avenue in uh, to a place where you really want to be. So I reached out to a friend of mine, um, a guy named Chris Osmond, who I went to high school with, who was working for a director at the time named Peter Siegel. Um, and Pete Siegel had directed some of my favorite films like Tommy Boy. And, and he was in the middle of prepping a movie called Get Smart, which was with Steve Carell. And he said, hey, our producer, this guy Charles Roven, I think is looking for a second assistant. And uh, I'll give him your resume. So I, um, I remember going into Atlas for this interview and, you know, I was 22 years old and I was wearing like a collared shirt barely. And I remember sitting in the, in the lobby in the waiting room next to two other guys that were wearing suits. They were about five or six years older than me. They had agency experience. And I remember thinking to myself, looking around like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, you're, you're not getting this job. But it's my first interview, so great. Let's get it done and let's let's go through it. So I think honestly, the reason why I did so well at the interview is because I convinced myself that I wasn't going to get that job. That this was just sort of like a throwaway interview to get myself in that process. Um, so I went. I interviewed with his two current assistants at the time. Left there thinking, okay, I got one in now. Now hopefully I'll start getting more 
we're interviews. And then two weeks later, I get a call saying that, that uh, Chuck Rovin is in town and he wants to meet me. So uh, I go over to his house on a Sunday and he had just gotten back. We were in prep at that time on The Dark Knight and, and Get Smart. And we were in post-production on a movie called The Bank Job. And um, so I could tell Chuck was just so exhausted. The last thing he wanted to be doing at this point was interviewing a new second assistant. And he then spent like the next hour in this interview trying to convince me why I didn't want this job. You know, why my life was going to be hell. Why, you know, all the horrible things that were coming with this job in, in hopes that he was going to scare me away. And, um, and it didn't. It sort of was exactly kind of what I wanted at that point in my life. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have anything else going on. So it was like the perfect time to kind of give everything I had to, to this. Um, so he hired me. And uh, I remember my first day, I was sort of a big fan of Honorage at that time. You know, this was back in 2007. And um, I, uh, it was, it's still, you know, obviously the same company I work at today. So that was, that was 13 years ago. And I started as the, the second assistant, which was really just sort of someone that, um, you know, answers the phones and does the filing and books the travel. Like, that's really it. But what you, what you get to be a part of when you're doing that is you get to listen to all of the phone calls that, that your boss is on. So you're literally listening to a guy at the highest level in the business producing movies at the highest level in the business. So at that point, we were making The Dark Knight. And it was the first movie that I got to work on sort of shoulder to shoulder with this guy and build it from the ground up with him um, while being, in, again, in post-production on the bank job and, and shooting Get Smart as well. And so there was so much going on at one time that um, it was a great experience. And so after about two months and I started to kind of get used to how things worked and how the phones worked, um, my first assistant at the time, who was really the person that kind of does most of the legwork, um, wasn't really getting along with, with my boss and they were having some communication issues and he, he ended up firing him in the middle of the day. So he looked over at me and, and, uh, someone that had almost no experience and said, I hope you've been paying attention because you're taking over the whole operation tomorrow. And so I used that as an opportunity to kind of say, okay, this is, you know, this is going to expedite my career. It's sort of me skipping two years of, of, of being a second assistant. And not only that, but because it's now just me, I can take how everything's being done in the office right now and, and repurpose it in a better, more efficient way. So as long as my boss didn't know that I was changing everything and that his business was running as usual, it was every, I made it work for me. And so I sort of redid everything at that time, you know, that was 2007. So we were still printing everything and filing everything like pieces of paper in, in actual file folders. <laughs> And uh, our headsets were connected to the phones. We had cords connected to us, so we couldn't really go anywhere. So, you know, when I took over as the first assistant, I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner on that desk, you know, seven days a week almost. Definitely six days a week every week. You know, from 8 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. You know, I had two phones, cell phones with me at all times. And, you know, at that point in your career, you know, you don't really have a life at all. If you're, if you're out, you know, if you're at a bar, you're in a movie and your boss calls, it's not the kind of situation where, okay, when I'm done or when the movie's over, I'll leave out, I'll call him back. No, it's like, you got to kind of walk out and call him back and deal with it at that point. Most of the time it was having to go home and deal with whatever was going on. So we had, we had movies, those three movies that we were doing were all over the world. You know, post-production for Bank Job was in Australia the Dark Knight was shooting in the UK and Get Smart was in um, Montreal. So because I ran the whole operation, I was working from LA dealing with all three of those time zones at the same time. So I didn't get much sleep for about a year and a half. Um, and I just sort of powered through. But what my boss did, which I don't even think he realized what it, what it did for me, but what he, he gave me sort of some light at the end of the tunnel at that point where he said, listen, if you can last two years in this kind of situation, I'll promote you at this company. And so I had sort of this, this outside date sitting way out there, knowing that like when things were really tough and you wanted to give up and say, fuck this, this isn't worth it. You're sort of inching your way towards that date. And I think giving, giving people sort of that light at the end of the tunnel, that kind of hope that like, if you can get to this point, you'll then move on is super helpful in our business. And it's pretty rare. You know, no one really makes those kind of commitments normally. So I got to the point, I got to that point and he, um, he promoted me and I became the first creative executive at the company at that time. And 
you know, that was in about 2009. So from, from 2007, when I started to now, um, I've, I've done sort of every job there is to do at a production company from second assistant to first assistant to creative executive to vice president to senior vice president, and now currently an executive vice president and a producer um, of sort of those, those big temple sized movies that I've always wanted to be a part of. So it's been a really, really long road, and, um, but a really good one. And I, I, I think, you know, I, I got lucky at the company that I landed at when I landed there. And we were just sort of at the beginning of, of starting something really big because I saw the sort of the writing on the wall. Um, and my boss, I think, I think, um, I think Bob, you met, you met my, have you met Chuck? You met him, haven't you? Yeah, brief, briefly. Um, yeah. And his wife, they were, they were at the gym for a little bit. Yeah, they're great. And he's, you know, he's, he's definitely one of the best, I think that there's ever been in terms of producing these massive 200 plus million dollar movies. But he's also, you know, one of the things I really like about him, he's just not a no bullshit kind of guy. You know, it's like, yeah. he's always very serious. He, you know, he's the kind of guy that you have to really think 12 steps ahead of you before you, you approach him with something. Cause he'll pick holes in everything that you talk to him about and ask you all these questions that you weren't ever expecting. And, and that's kind of who he is. He's, he's, you know, he's a great, um, person to sort of model my career after because he runs the company, but he's also still the hardest working guy at the company, you know? And, and I think he's never been one of those guys where he's achieved, you know, more success than you could ever imagine. And he's not, you know, I think he's 70, just turned 70 and he's like not slowing down at all. You know, he's still operating at, at the same speed that he's always been at. Um, not to say that that's what I want to be doing at, at 70 years old, but some guys are just built like that. And, and like I said, he's still the hardest working guy at the company and he works, you know, 15, 16 hour days, seven days a week. He doesn't ever give up, which, you know, keeps all of us on our toes because we're still getting calls from him all, all hours of the day. And- is he, is he one thing that strikes me about when I met him and his wife, they're very nice, unassuming people. Like you would yeah. never know he's who he is. And yeah. Frankly, you're the same way. Like, like I said, but you know, before we got on, you're, you're Andy to me. You've always been kind, welcoming. And I notice how people treat other people. I've never seen you aggressive with somebody. I've never seen you put somebody down. You really are one of the nicest guys I've ever met. That's like, to me, like, that's how you have to kind of, you know, what, what I always tell people in Hollywood, you have to operate at one end of the spectrum, meaning that you can't sort of play in the middle. So you add, you either have to be like, you know, how Chuck is, which is a very serious, intimidating guy that, that doesn't do so much anymore, but used to kind of raise his voice a lot and sort of, you know, a lot of people operated out of fear. Um, and so that's one way to be in Hollywood. And there's a lot of people like that still, and they're very, very successful doing that. And then to me, there's the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, try to be as cool, calm and collected as you can possibly be. And have people do things for you and want to work with you because they they want to do good for you. You know, they actually want to be a part of your team. So with when I was working for Chuck, we were like the perfect yin and yang, meaning mm. like he would when things would go wrong and problems would happen, and I was working for him, and he would get very upset at someone and you know raise his voice. I would be the guy that would call them back ten minutes later and go, okay, let's have a conversation about what happened. Let's talk about how to make sure that doesn't happen again. And you know, this is such a high stress business. There's so much at stake at all times, especially financially. That to me, the, what works best for me is to, to sort of always try to take that cool, calm and collected approach because it doesn't do anyone any good to freak out and to panic and scream at people and yell at people. To me, that's just, that's pretty counterproductive, I think, for, for the collaborative environment that we try to work in in Hollywood. I think a lot of our listeners probably don't know like what a producer does. I mean, we, we see the names in the credits. I, I think most people know what a director does. Most people know what an actor does. How would you describe your role to people who, who are maybe fans of, of your films, but really don't know what you did on those projects? You know, a producer kind of like, well, I always describe it as like, it sort of starts and ends with us. You know, every movie kind of starts and ends with us. So, you know, we will be kind of the shepherds of films from, from really just an idea where it's just an idea. I want to make a movie about this. And what we do is we'll usually, we, we sort of throw the movie on our back and we march it up the hill essentially is the best way to describe it. So, you know, we will, if you're talking about building a movie, we'll have an idea that we want to make a movie about this, or we have a piece of IP, whether it's a comic book or, comic book or something that we want to turn into a film. So what we'll do is we'll go out there and we'll, create a writer's list of all the writers we think would make sense for this material. 
we'll then start having conversations with those writers and hear what their versions of that movie would be. You know, we then will take that, the one that we feel like is the best version of that movie, the most commercial version, the one that would reach the biggest audience. We'll take that to the studios and we'll hope that we get the studios to pay them to write that movie. Um, then from there, once we have a script, we'll start putting our, what we call our director's list together. So we'll start making a list of filmmakers that we feel like are the right types of filmmakers for that movie and whatever it may be. And we'll start having conversations with them. We'll start sending them scripts. We'll see who responds to it. You know, everyone that responds or raises their hand will come to us. We'll have a conversation with them. We'll feel, we'll ask them how they see the movie, what they see it's going to look like, what kind of tone it's going to be, what kind of, who, who are the actors they see that should play these roles. From there, the end, we'll make the decision along with the studio, usually who that who that filmmaker is going to be, and then you know at that point we're 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 sort of twenty five percent there, right? We're getting closer to making a movie now. Now we have a script. Now we have a filmmaker. We'll go out there and start finding cast. So we're, we're the ones that will call the agents, talk to them about the material, pick which actors we feel like are the best in conjunction with our filmmaker and our studio start getting reads. And so again, we're just slowly putting the movie together. We're putting piece by piece by piece by piece to the point where now all of a sudden we have a movie. And so it's, it's, it's time for the studio, whoever's financing it to green light that film and say, okay, we'll give you X amount of money. So while that's all happening on the creative front, we're also working with the line producer to create a budget for the film. We're managing the budget. We're going through every line of the budget. We're trying to, work with them to get that number down to wherever our studio wants it to be, who's going to finance the movie. So we have like sort of our whole left side of our brain is the creative side, putting the creative pieces of the movie together and the whole right side, making sure that we're in a, in the target zone for what the budget needs to be. We're hiring, you know, the right crew members to be the cinematographers and the production designers, the stunt coordinators, you know, so we're, we're building all of those pieces. We're sort of, again, putting all these pieces together to the point where, okay, we're now ready to start prep on the film, which means we've got our department heads, which are the heads of all of our creative departments. We've got our filmmaker, our actors. We'll then go out on scouts to find the best. So all of that happens. Once we actually finally get to the point where we're actually physically making a movie, which is really, really difficult to get to that point. We always like to say that every movie is a miracle. You know, it really is to get to that point where you have cameras on a set and actors there and you're ready to call action. It took so much to get to that point, usually at a minimum two to three years just to get to that point. So while we're on set, we are essentially problem solvers. So because we've put everything together to get to that point, we're responsible, the studios or whoever's paying for the movie looks to us to be responsible for managing the movie at that point. That, of course, comes into play when you are dealing with actors that may be unhappy some days. So we're the ones going in there and talking to them, making sure that they're happy and they're getting what they need. You know, we're managing the training programs for our actors to making sure that, you know, they're fit and they're looking good for the movies in conjunction with what they need to do with the stunt departments. And so Again, anytime anyone's having any problems on the film, whether it be financially, creatively, personally with certain people, they're always in our office telling us about it and expecting us to go solve it. So that's sort of what we do when we're actually physically making the movie. And there's problems that come up all the time, whether it's weather-related issues or you're not making your days, you didn't finish what you needed to shoot that day, so you have to figure out where in the schedule you're going to put it, and then it becomes this sort of puzzle piece that you have to figure out. So then you finally get to the point where we wrap the movie. We've shot the whole movie. Now we've wrapped the movie. Now it's time to, to, to do the post-production part of it. So again, you have a whole new budget for post-production. You're managing the visual effects department, making sure everyone's getting what they need. It's finally get to the point where your movie's out there. And that whole time, then all of a sudden, we're managing the marketing campaign of the movie. So the studios are sending us posters and trailers, and we're giving notes and creative thoughts on what we feel like is the best version of certain trailers and certain one sheets. and radio spots and so we're right in the nucleus in the center of all of that giving all those creative notes there you know when you're talking about doing the, the dc films when you have sort of this whole ancillary market with, which is toys and video games and everything that comes with that we're also really integral in that whole process too because we have to manage the creative part of the movie in conjunction with those toys so the toys have to look the right way they have to have the right outfits they have to have the right weapons and vehicles, but we also have to make sure that 
none of those things get out there before the movie gets out there because we don't want, like, for example, like when we were doing The Dark Knight, Mattel wanted to release the Batmobile toy way before the movie came out. And if you remember in The Dark Knight, there's this great reveal where the bat pod ejects off of the front of the, the Batmobile, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a great moment in the movie. Well, if we would have let that toy get out there six months before the movie went out, that bat pod on that toy ejected off of the Batmobile. So, of course, it would have sort of blew that. So, those are the kind of things that we have to constantly manage because for us as the producers, the movie is always the most important thing, right? Yeah. Above all else, above the actors, the filmmaker, everyone, the movie is sort of our responsibility. So, like I said, we sort of are shepherding it from, from an idea all the way to the point where it's in the theaters and beyond. You know, then we're dealing with the DVD, we're dealing mm-hmm. with the release patterns and on demand. Um, and then so finally, you know, we get to the point where we're, the movie, where we're done. You know, everything has been done. And usually any movie that we work on it is a minimum of a three-year process. You wow. know, sometimes, sometimes a lot more. You know, Triple Frontier, which is a movie that I just did for Netflix, you know, that, was, that took us nine years, almost 10 years to get that movie made from... From the beginning of the end. I really like your answer to that question because I, you you had said earlier, like you need to to know a little bit about every process. Like you went to film school, you had to understand like, you know, what, what does a cinematographer do? What does an editor do? What, what do the gaffers do? But I mean, all the other things that are around it, it's not, I I don't think people appreciate how, uh, how well built the Hollywood machine is because there are people, there's so many people and so many different things involved and everybody's sort of found a way to, to specialize, to try to handle a particular kind of problem. And so as yeah. a producer, you're, you're the shepherd of a whole bunch of different disciplines. And it, and it kind of makes sense when you go see like a big DC movie or a big Marvel movie and the credits are 10 minutes long, like it starts to yeah. make sense why there's so many people involved oh, yeah. in there. And I, I don't yeah. think a lot of people appreciate like how grandiose that effort really is. No, I mean, you got to realize like that every big movie, especially the DC films or any movie that's sort of what we call tentpoles, which are these big, the biggest movies the studios makes, every single one of them has thousands of people to work on it. You know, probably between, you know, one and 3000 people between all the visual effects artists, all the drivers, all the marketing department, all the people that work on the trailers. If you add them all up, there's thousands of people that work on every single one of these movies, which is why I get so upset when, when people you know, love to, they bash movies online and I get it, you know, not all movies are good and no one sets out to make a bad movie. That's no one's intention ever. Sometimes it happens, but you know, the people that are so quick to just kind of bash everyone and go out there and talk shit about all these movies, they, they're essentially not taking in, they don't, they're not acknowledging that thousands of people work their fucking asses off for years on these movies. And, and it's not their fault. The movies don't work sometimes, you know, maybe their jobs are good. So I always have this, this bone to pick with the, with these sort of, I call them keyboard crusaders, you know, on Twitter and, and, uh, these, these, uh, critics. So they just love to just run out there and tell everyone how bad a movie is if they don't like it. And you know, it's pretty fucked up. My, really. my response to them is always, well, where's the movie that you made? I mean, yeah. if you had a better idea, like why didn't you pull it together? Why didn't you make the effort <laughs> and see how it turns out? Yeah. Now, Andy, one thing I want to back up to is, is you talked about the differences between you and Chuck, for example, he's big, scary yells, your, the nice guy. But one thing that I think you probably got for him is your ability to stay grounded. Yeah. Now I have a story I want to tell about you. Um, you brought John Leguizamo and Patrick Wilson to my gym. Every time John trained, you showed up with him. Uh, <laughs> when I brought my kid to set, which he still talks about, uh, by the way, That's awesome. I watched you interact with everybody. You know the makeup lady by name. You know the lighting person by name. You seem really connected. And and that's one of the things that earned my respect for you. Is that all producers or is that you that yeah, does that? It's not all producers. And I will say it's sort of how, it's how we're built at Atlas. I mean, at, at Atlas, you know, we are hands-on producers through and through. We're there every step of the way. There's a lot of producers in town that, will be involved in the development of the script and they'll help put the movie together. And then they may show up a few days on set, you know, maybe six or seven days out of an 80 day schedule. They'll be involved in post a little bit and then they'll show up at the premiere and they'll do press and then they get a producer credit and that's kind of what they do. And there's a lot of people that do that. You know, we don't do that because we, we feel like we're responsible to our finances. We feel like we need to be there every step of the way because that's what we're getting paid to do. And in my opinion, you can't do your job right if you don't know exactly what's going on, who's doing what, who feels 
this way about this person and that way about that person and who's complaining about what, because as a producer, in my opinion, you got to be right in the middle of all that because you have to manage all that. And if, if people aren't getting along or things aren't going the right way and you're not around and you don't know what's going on, you can't solve that problem appropriately, in my opinion. But on, on The Hollow Point, which is the movie that we worked on that, that Bobby was involved in, you know, they, it, that was that training program was put together so late. Like, I remember calling him up and going like, hey, I've got we're shooting in your city. I've got two actors. We didn't talk about training until they got here. And they didn't think that it was a necessary part of the movie because you know, it wasn't that, it wasn't a superhero film. It wasn't that kind of movie. And so, you know, especially at that point when, you know, John Leguizamo came to me and he said, you know, I've got these shirtless scenes. I kind of want to look a little bit better. It was sort of the perfect opportunity to be like, Hey, we're in this city with this great gym, with this great trailer, like, let's go. And then of course he started to look at me and go like, this is, do we really have to go every day? And I'm really after this. And what I told him at that point was, listen, I'll do it with you. You know, and I would never ask you to do something that I wasn't willing to do myself. And so at that point, it was me and him in there every single day together. And I will say, like, it, it started my, my fitness journey. You know, that was the beginning of it for me, too. And, and that's just sort of where I got hooked also, because I started to realize how good I felt and, and, and sort of what it was doing for my mental clarity and sort of everything else about my world. And it was doing the same thing for John, too. He, I mean... Bob knows, Bobby knows, like he loved it. He fell in love with it. He became obsessed with it. And then all of a sudden I had him knocking on my hotel room door going, get the fuck up, let's go. We're going to the gym, we're going on a run. <laughs> and he was bringing, he was dragging me out there. And so, but I, you know, I did the same thing on Suicide Squad too. You know, like when we were doing Suicide Squad, you know, we built an amazing gym. We had all of our actors have an incredibly intense training program. And part of the process when I was taking them through what we were going to need them to do I said to them, listen, like, I'll be in the gym every day. I'll be there with you. Because to me, it's hard for people to complain to me about what I'm asking them to do if I'm doing it with them. So yeah. I love to do that, you know, with, with our actors on training because I look at that, they look at me and they go, well, if he's doing it, how am I going to bitch and moan about having to do that? When, when they're getting paid to do it and I'm not, it's yeah. sort of, I'm finding extra time to have the day to do it. And that's why, like, when you explained what you did as a producer, the way I explain it to people, um, when I'm asked about you, I'm like, well, Andy's like the CEO, but he works in the mail room. As well. <laughs> and, that's, and that's why I wanted to know that as well, because I've seen you so involved in every facet. I almost describe it as this isn't a job for you. This is your life. 24, yeah. 7, 365 is really how you treat it. Yeah, it is. I mean, and every time, you know, every time I go make a movie, I leave town for, you know, five, six, seven, eight months and I'm gone for that whole period of time. Um, but I, but I do, I love it. You know, like to me, it's like the day I wake up and, and don't look forward to going to work is the day I'm done. You know, cause to me, it's like life's too short to, to go to work and grind it out and something you don't like doing, but I really do. I love what I do and I have a really good time doing it. And, you know, part of the meeting people and, you know, finding new people that do really cool things on every movie. Like I, I love that stuff. You know, it's part of why, why it keeps me going. So Andy, where, where does fitness fit in? I mean, when you're, when you're traveling, you're out of town for months at a time, uh, yeah. you know, you don't have what, what most people are always looking for, which is like a consistent gym, a consistent program. How, okay. how do you fit fitness in and, and what does that mean to you as far as, as how well you're able to, to execute everything else that's on your plate? Cause you've got to sacrifice that little bit of time. Oh, What's yeah. the payoff? I mean, for me, it's, you know, I will say selfishly, every, all the movies that I, that I go out and do, I try to bring a trainer that I love working with with me to be the person that's training those actors, you know, in hopes that I can obviously get my own sessions in and figure out times to keep going. But I will say weirdly for me and a lot of people, uh, this is the opposite for, but for me, I'm, I'm in the best shape when I'm out making the movie. Um, it's easier for me to have a consistent training regimen when I'm off making a movie than when I'm at home and having to go in the morning before I go to the office or find time to go. I'm, I'm better at it when I'm in a different city in a different location without all the distractions at home. And, and not only that, again, like I just sort of, I love, there's such great camaraderie in the gym that I will say like for what I do as a producer, when I'm in the gym with the actors and, and all the stunt guys, I also learn a lot about what's happening on the movie. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of people talk in the gym and they're, they're talking about things that happened yesterday. And so for me, it's also a way to not only get closer to my crew because they see me sort of in there sweating it out with them every day, but I'm also learning so much about what the problems that they're having and, and issues that may be going on or things that 
they feel like could be done better. And I'm always listening when things are happening. And so I also take a lot of what I, what I hear in there and then apply to the set or whatever's happening on the movie later because it allows me to do that. And so, you know, but I will say, you know, fitness is such a huge part of, of almost all movies, in my opinion. You know, every actor especially is going to want to stay in shape um, because they're going to be seen on a screen in front of millions of people and they want to look their best. You know, some movies are different than others. Obviously, the superhero films have a whole separate, you know, training component that's incredibly important because they have to look like superheroes. And, you know, part of what we do as producers is we will pair them up with trainers that we feel like make the most sense for them. And that's that's difficult to do. You know, everyone has very different wants and needs from their trainers. And it's a little bit of a musical chairs type situation sometimes with trying them out with some person. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe the personalities don't make sense. You go find them someone else to see if this works. And so you're constantly, you know, part of the training process because, you know, actors are working on set every day, but they're also in the gym every day while they're, they're trying to find the time to do that. You're making sure that they have the right meal plans. So we're, we're managing that whole process and making sure that they need what they need, what they, they get what they need to look their best on screen. It's hard to do, you know, it's, it's always, it's, it's, it's a very dramatic part of the movie yeah. every time I will say, because as you know, these people are sweating and working their asses off. And if, if they're not gelling with their trainers, you'd be surprised what kind of problems we end up having on set because of that. I have a, I have a question about fitness making a better movie because I saw something really interesting at Suicide Squad that I think is outside the norm. And if you could talk about it for a minute, it'd be awesome. Yeah. You had a big box gym, essentially, like a big-ass yeah. functional gym. And one thing I saw was the lead of the, of the movie working out with yeah. a cameraman or a grip or it was like it wasn't like an actor tucked away training by themselves like suicide squad to me seemed like a team and a lot of people myself included say that it's the best of all the dc movies like it was really well done do you think fitness drove that like the fact it was a team it was i mean i will say that movie out of all the movies i worked on i had the most fun making that movie you know for many reasons you know one of which i met my wife working on that movie in, in toronto but but that movie was the camaraderie between the actors and the crew was something i've, I've absolutely never seen before and i will say i i attribute the training process to that absolutely you know we built you know, Peter Bowden was a, he was a huge part of that process. And when he got out there and, and was, um, you know, he was there really early with me. And what I told him was, listen, like, I'd love to start these group trainings, you know, and, and he looked at me and he goes, I'm game, you know, I'm here. This is my, this is what I'm here for to do that. So I'm happy to, when I'm not training actors to put, you know, little group training sessions together with the crew. So we started doing these crew training sessions with anyone that wanted to join from PAs, which are sort of at the, at the bottom of the pyramid, all the way up to producers and director and Will Smith and all the actors, anyone was invited. And we started before we had our, our big beefy gym, we had this little sort of ghetto gym that we started in. And we then built this incredible gym. I mean, you saw Bobby, it was a gym that I was so proud of because we had, you know, Rogue donated a bunch of stuff to us and everyone just kept, you know, seeing what we were putting together and wanted to be a part of it. And we built this amazing gym. All of the trainers, whether it was Will Smith's trainers or Peter, all sort of came together to make sure that everyone had what they needed in this massive space. And we started to do um, what we called Suicide Saturdays, which were like every Saturday, even though we had all just worked 70 hours that week, we would all show up on Saturday morning and Peter would show up and he would run these training sessions. And we started with you know, probably seven or eight people. Um, and then once we really started shooting the movie, what we started to do is on our lunch breaks, we would, everyone would run to the gym at lunch and train together and do a really intense workout. And in that period, our actors started showing up too, you know? And so you had Margo and Jai and Joel and Jay and Will and everyone that was part of this. And it was an incredible way for everyone from PAs to sound people to, to art department people, to camera department, to our director, to our producers, everyone was equal for one hour of the day. We were all in the same playing field. You know, we were all getting our ass kicked in the gym. We were all sweating. We were all crying. You know, it was that kind of moment. And then, of course, when lunch would wrap, we'd all go back to set and everyone sort of assumed back into their roles. But because we had this one hour of the day where everyone was on an equal playing field, 
the camaraderie on that set was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And you saw people from people that were, you know, a hundred plus pounds overweight lose over a hundred pounds throughout the course of that movie. And you had, you know, people that we started in those training groups on that film that still to this day, who I follow on social media are still going strong and they're still working every day. And it just created this, it was definitely unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And I, I, you know, would love to sort of repeat that one day, but um, that the ingredients on that film between what Peter put together and whatever, what the cast and crew, when they all came together and created that environment was just something I'm like, I'd ever seen before. I mean, you know, we had people that, that completely transformed their lives throughout the making of that movie. And they just felt like, again, because we're all on an equal playing field for an hour of the day, and it doesn't matter how much money you make or what department you're in, you're all in the gym together doing the same thing. It just created this camaraderie on set that was, um, was really special. Is that something you're aiming to replicate then going forward? Like, is that something on some of your future projects you want to have is just a man, not a mandatory thing necessarily, but a huge part of the movie? Yeah. I mean, I try every time, you know, of course, not on every movie, we don't have that kind of budget where we can make a gym like that, um, you know, or we, or have a space like that or have trainers like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, we, we did like a little mini version of it on Triple Frontier with Eddie out there. And Eddie was running a great program for us on Triple Frontier. And um, we just didn't have the resources and the, the equipment and, the, you know, the, the other the, what made it so easy on Suicide Squad is our gym was on the studio. So everyone could just walk over to it because we were shooting so much on the stages on Triple Frontier was so much harder because our gym was in the stunt rehearsal space, which was really far from every location. So it was just like the, like I said, the, the ingredients on Suicide Squad were just sort of perfect for that. But yeah, of course, every movie I do, you know, my goal is to try to create something like that. Cause I just think people work better and more efficiently if they're, if they're mentally exercised and they're getting that, that what they need every day. And fitness is a huge part of your life. Tell us about the LA marathon. Yeah. You just, when we were hanging out in September, you were talking about training for it and all that kind of stuff. And, and you just did this thing. Yeah. You know, I'm a, and I'm not a runner, you know, like I'm not built like a runner. I'm short and stocky. I have the opposite runner's body that, that I think most of the people have out there. And, um, you know, I go to a great, I work out at a great gym out here called studio. And there's a, and a few of the guys that we worked out with just sent this random text back in October, September, October of last year and said, Hey, who wants to run the marathon? When I looked at it, I said, sure, I'm up for it. I'll do it. And um, the most I'd ever run at that point was about five or six miles. I think it's as far as I'd ever run. And, uh, and then I got to this point where I was so busy at the end of last year that I didn't really start training. I ran, I did a few runs and that was kind of it. And then all of a sudden I hit January of this year and realized, fuck, the marathon's about eight weeks away. I better start this process. <laughs> so I started my training like this end of the first week of January with, um, with seven miles. And we, and these guys and I at our gym, we'd meet up, you know, every Sunday and we'd, we would run the marathon course. So we would start with seven miles and we'd do 10 miles and then 12 miles and then 14 miles. And then we worked our way all the way up to 20 miles. Um, so throughout that eight, eight week period is really all I really had to train for the marathon, which if I ever do it again, I would, you know, they, I think they suggest you do, I think about 20, 20 weeks, I think is when you're, where you're supposed to be at for, for 26 weeks, somewhere in there. So, um, I loved it. You know, I, I don't know if I'll do it again. I, I, I probably will, but you know, I, I really, I fucked up my knees and my feet and then halfway through I had a stress fracture on my left foot. And so I was trying to sort of figure out workarounds with races and, and, um, you know, the guys that I ran it with, the guys and girls that I ran it with were, were incredible because we pushed each other and kept making sure, you know, we were accountable to our training and getting our miles in every week. Um, and you know, luckily it was, we, the LA marathon was, was really one week before we had our statewide lockdown in California. So I was, we were all so worried that they were going to pull the plug on it after, after all the training and pain that we went through to get to that point. Um, but, but luckily like literally the next day after the marathon is when essentially they called it and said that the quarantine was going to start. Um, but we got it done. It was an amazing experience. Definitely probably the hardest thing I've ever done. No doubt. I mean, it, that, running a marathon is no fucking joke. <laughs> And, and so on that, that day was, and that day was the sun was out and it was hot and, you know, we were all injured and, you know, we, we hobbled ourselves over the finish line and we made it happen, which was cool. 
So, so that's something you should be damn proud of. And for what it's worth, I am proud of you. I don't think people uh, understand the training that goes into a marathon. You mentioned uh, it getting shut down, not getting shut down. You were worried it was going to get shut down because of the quarantine, but your industry is down right now to a degree. Is it not like how, how much has this affected you? I mean, a, a tremendous amount. You know, I will say I always felt like, you know, and sort of stupidly bragged about, like, I felt like my industry was sort of, um, you know, it was recession proof. And like, no matter what was going on in the world, people were always going to want to watch movies and have entertainment. And I just, you know, I, I'll be honest, like we in Hollywood thought we were kind of bulletproof to, to anything that was sort of happening in the world or the economy or whatever was going on. Um, this has really kicked our ass in a significant way. You know, it's gotten to the point where there's not a single movie or TV show shooting right now. Nothing is shooting. Every single thing is shut down. So the only thing that's happening in our business at the moment, you know, luckily for, for what we do as producers is a big part of our job, which is development, you know, developing scripts, trying to put movies together in hopes that when this is over, we have movies that are ready to go. Um, but it's really unprecedented. You know, this has never really happened before. So it's, it's really, you know, kind of tough to say, what the recovery is going to be like, you know, you got to imagine that you had hundreds and, and uh, TV shows and movies being shut down, which means when we're done and we're, we're through this, how do they all get going at once? Well, well, they're not going to, you know, some of those movies aren't going to come back. Some of well, them Andy, I, I, I kind of look at this from a different perspective. I, uh, I graduated from, uh, from my film school in 2001. Yeah. And my, I had connections. I had a, a guy who was a, a, a Emmy award-winning props master, had all kinds of connections. Like, oh yeah, we'll get you in as a PA on some film. You can start building your career. My, my dream uh, was to, to mix my, my love of film and martial arts and get onto a stunt crew somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and then September 11th and yeah. literally everything shut down. And people that I knew in the industry, they never, they've never worked there again because right. so much stuff was shut down. They ended up like selling insurance was what happened to my guy. And yeah. so, I, I see that this, in a, I would say in a smaller sense, has actually happened. So yeah. would you think maybe there's, maybe there's some lessons in, in that as far as to kind of how to restart this thing once that comes up? I mean, how much does the, does the industry remember about September 11th and compare that to our current situation? Yeah, you know, it's tough to say. You know, I wasn't in the business at that point. I was still in high school when that happened, but... Um, but it's really hard to say. I mean, the, the closest thing I think that we've been through, at least in my 13 years in the business is, you know, in 2008, uh, 2008, 2009, you know, we had a pretty big recession happen in the world. We also had a writer's strike. You know, when mm -hmm. there's a writer's strike, the whole business sort of shuts down to a certain extent as well because the writers can't work on anything. And so you yeah. sort of come to the standstill on, on things that are happening. Um, you know, that didn't last that long and we were able to recover pretty quickly in this situation, it's hard to say because, you know, so many companies have laid off so much of their staff and those people, most of them can't just sit and wait around for this to be over. They got to go find other means of income and sources of income to try to stay, you know, paying their bills and their mortgages. And so I don't know how many of those people are going to come back and if yeah. they're going to sort of fall into a different hole. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been brutal. I will say it's been really, really brutal. And, and, you know, the, the ironic part of it is I think what's getting so many people through this period of being stuck at home is having stuff to watch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, people are burning through Netflix and everything there is on their TVs, you know, and, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when we get to, you know, the first quarter and second quarter of 2021, when there's not going to be a lot of new stuff because yeah. all that stuff that was meant to be released at that point should have been shooting right now. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how we recover. I, we will recover. Everyone will get back to normal eventually, but it's definitely going to take some time. No doubt. You know, it's, it's taken a hit, uh, at every level of the business, you know, from like, a, from very, very, at the very, very bottom to PAs all the way up to CEOs and, and the heads of all these studios. Um, of course, some of them are taking a much bigger financial head than others, but, but everyone's taking a really big hit. Well, I, would, uh, I, I want to throw out there, this is me being selfish, that when, when September 11th happened, I ended up working in local TV for a number of years and ended up just kind of getting burnt out. Um, yeah. I left the country. I went and lived in South Korea for a while, just studying martial mm -hmm. arts, came back, was a prison guard, uh, ended up getting into fitness, and here I am. Mm -hmm. um, my, my life's dream has always been to get my name in credits on a major film. So if you need a PA, if you need a, a trainer, a stuntman, a guy to fetch coffee, just keep my name 
Um, because oh, wow. I, oh, wow. Where, do you live in LA? Where are you at? I'm in Minneapolis. Minneapolis, okay. Yeah. yeah good, to know. good to know. Yeah. <laughs> what I wanted to ask Andy is, do you think this breathes new life into some older shows? I was reading something the other day about people are starting to view stuff on Netflix they might have never viewed before because they're burning through you know, TV and shows. Do you think this is going to breathe new life in some of those old shows that maybe got canceled that people wanted back? I think so. I mean, you know, I know so many people, not so many, but a few people that are starting Sopranos from the beginning right now, which I'm so jealous of because, you know, and some of them are watching it for the first time, which I can't, like that whole, be able to watch the Sopranos for the first time at this point would be so amazing. Um, And uh, so a lot of people are going back and starting Sopranos from the beginning, which is a great, thing to do in my opinion that whole series is incredible um but yeah i agree a lot of people are doing that you know you have places like hbo they're offering you know sopranos and the wire and these shows for free to people to go watch to keep them occupied so people are definitely starting to dig up old shows and and um it's it's kind of great to see but it's just you know again like i feel like what's great is, uh, is the entertainment business is really you know doing what they can to try to help people through this process and i think people are relying so heavily on on content to to distract themselves and focus on something else other than being at home um so it's it's been great to see people you know doing that and exploring new shows and and just sort of you know looking at different stuff what are some of the new things you're working on uh because i'm i'm curious about what you do and it's actually kind of cool when i realize that a friend of mine had a hand in this movie i tell my kids all the time they don't think it's that cool they don't get it yet (laughs) You know what I mean? But yeah. I think, I think it's amazing. So what kind of things are you working on? Yeah. You know, we have a lot going on at Atlas at all the t- at all times. You know, we, we have Wonder Woman two that's coming out in August now. So we pushed that date from June to August, which we're really excited about. It's a, it's pretty, pretty close to the same weekend that we released Suicide Squad in where we had a bunch of success there. Um, so we have that coming out in August. We, uh, we did an animated Scooby-Doo movie that, that, um, got pushed a little bit later, later this year. That was supposed to come out in May. Uh, we have Suicide Squad 2 that James Gunn wrote and directed that's in post-production right now, which is really exciting. Uh, we had, um, which I know, Bobby, you're a fan of Uncharted, was one day from starting to shoot that movie, and we ended up having to shut it down. So that movie's been, you know, it's not one of my projects at Atlas, but it's an Atlas movie. It's been in the works for so long, and, and it's had so many ups and downs, and they finally felt like we were going to get there. And then literally one day before the first day of production, it went down. Um, So, you know, there's a number of things that I'm working on that I'm really excited about as well. There's a, um, a script called Barbarian that we're ended up, we're putting together right now, which is uh, about this character called Boudica. And um, it's essentially a, the best way to describe it is sort of a female Braveheart is really what it is. It's very much in line with Braveheart and Gladiator and what that movie is. It's probably one of my favorite scripts we've ever developed at Atlas in my time there. And it's something I'm super proud of. So we're putting a lot of energy and putting that together right now in hopes that, that we can get that up and running, you know, maybe first quarter of next year. Um, there's a few TV series that we're working on at the moment. And then a, um, a little sort of uh, home invasion thriller that we're in the process of setting up over at um, HBO Max's new streaming service right now. So there's there's a lot. You know, there's a lot well, a lot happening in a lot of different levels. And, you know, the way it works as a producer is I usually have 50 things sort of at different stages all happening at once because you just don't quite know what's going to go and when it's going to go. So you always have to be juggling, you know, a bunch of plates at the same time. So, I, you know, it's, we'll see what ends up happening. Um, but, you know... The good news about what a lot of what I do is that we've been staying really busy. I've been distracted by so much work during this period. And, um, you know, I just moved to a new house last year and built myself a little home office. And so I've got my own little space to uh, spend most of the day now, which is nice. I, uh, one thing you may or may not know about me, Joe, is that I played Uncharted 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, probably 40 times. Oh, I know. Front to back. So, Andy, it's actually funny. You don't need to tell me about Uncharted because I literally Google this every damn, damn, like Uncharted movie, Uncharted movie. So um, I do have a request, a selfish request. There is this part in every single Drake movie where he fights a thug and the thug is an enormous bald headed person. I think I sent you a picture of it. I will do that shit 
for free. I'll fly <laughs> myself out there. I'll train myself. I just want that spot. I will, uh, I will throw in a good word. I happen to know the right people. So. <laughs> good, good, good. I, I, I like that. Yeah, as soon as we get that back off the ground, which we will, uh, I will keep you posted. This is like this is like the one thing. If there was two movies in my entire life that somebody could make that would affect me on a personal level, it would be Uncharted and He Man. Those are the two that would like, you know, completely change yeah, my Andy, life. Write that down, He Man. We need a new He Man. Like that. Trying to make one. I've seen a bunch of announcements. They're trying to make a new Masters of the Universe. So we'll see if they can get it going. But. Uh, yeah. He-Man was, I remember that, that, yeah, that movie they made in, in, what was it, the 80s, early 90s? Yeah, Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren, yeah, yeah. That was, that was a good one. <laughs> now, what do you what do you want to accomplish? Like when we, uh, Joe and I did an exercise in one of our podcasts not long ago where somebody would write their own eulogy. What yeah. do you want to accomplish in this business? Where do you see yourself in 30 years, 20 years from now? What do you really want to do? Um, you know, it's hard <laughs> I'm sort of doing it at the moment, which is really nice. You know, I, I, um, you know, eventually of course, you know, it'd be nice to be my own boss and to sort of have my own company doing exactly what we do at Atlas. Um, I'm really happy at Atlas right now. You know, we, we have a great infrastructure. We have a great team there and I really love everyone that that's work that I work with every day. So I'm, I'm really comfortable at the moment, but I think, you know, if you had to look at long-term goals, you know, let's say five, 10 year goals, somewhere in that zone, that's what I'd be hoping to do is be, be able to sort of carve my own path with my own company and, you know, create the kind of environment that, um, that I sort of like to sort of create in my own little bubble at Atlas and sort of expand on that in a bigger way uh, eventually. But, um, you know, the goal for every producer is, is to make movies that you yourself want to go see, you know, is to not, not sort of be chasing the almighty dollar in terms of just looking for things that you think are going to work on a financial level. But, you know, I, in my opinion, as filmmakers, we have a pretty big responsibility. We, you know, people look to movies and TV series to inspire themselves and to learn how to act on a daily basis. So to me, it's, you know, if we can make films that inspire people to be better people and also um, tell stories that allow people to escape from their, the monotony of their life for two hours at a time or a series, um, you know, that's really my goal. And it's, it's, it's it's a really really rewarding job that we do and it's my favorite experience ever is you know spending three years on working on a movie and then going and sort of sneaking into the back of the theater when the movie comes out and kind of watch everyone you know respond to what you've spent so much time doing so you know to me i think again long-term goal is just to continue to, to make movies that that i myself would want to go see in the theater and not just be trying to make things um for the sole purpose because i think they've, they're going to make money Got it. Now, now, a lot of people are probably seeing that, like hearing this on audio, so they can't see the, like, I'm seeing your face right now. You yeah. got to tell me about the Buffalo Bills helmet. <laughs> uh, I am a huge Buffalo Bills fan, which is, which is very odd. I will say I grew up in LA. Uh, I've never lived in Western New York, but um, I have two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And for some reason, when we were little, little kids, we became obsessed with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, this is sort of back, let's say, like 94, 95, when they were, you know, getting to the Super Bowl every year and then losing. And so we, I've always been an advocate of the underdog. You know, it's always, I've always rooted for the underdog. I've always, that was always sort of my, when we played video games, I would always pick the player who looked like the underdog. You know, I was always that guy. So we, um, my brothers and I have just sort of hung on for the last 20 plus years in a very uncomfortable way of uh, getting our asses kicked over and over and over. But what we've, um, what we've been able to do for the last 10 years in a row is, you know, I have a little brother lives up in Northern California. My older brother lives here. We're all busy doing our own things. But, but once a year, we all get together. We fly to Buffalo and we go to a home game, a Buffalo Bills home game. And it's sort of the one thing that kind of we all get to look forward to every year. Um, and we, since then, have become very close friends with uh, one of the team doctors of the Buffalo Bills and, and his kids who are really good friends of ours. And so we also get, you know, some special treatment now when we go out there with getting on the field. And so it's, it's just an amazing thing. And so every Sunday, you know, my brother who lives in LA will come to my house. It's our own little thing uh, that we love. And, you know, it's been a really difficult journey with the Buffalo Bills for the last 20 years, but it, it feels like we're finally in a place now where, we could be really proud of this team. And, and, um, so, so yeah, it's a, it's sort of a big part of my life that really. So, 
that could not have been a better answer for the sole <laughs> reason that a lot of people throw around the word friend and they mean acquaintance. Yeah. I have a very dear friend who I spent years with named Chad Hall, who's wow. on the coaching staff of the Buffalo Bills. Oh, nice. And I have the ability to greatly enhance your special treatment. <laughs> so Joe, Joe wants his name and credits. I want some of that uncharted action. Let's talk <laughs> after the podcast yeah, about we'll some kind of barter system. The, uh, the second question I have for you is when we met last, you were looking at building a home gym in yeah. your garden and stuff like that. Did you manage to get that done before the quarantine or are you in workout hell right now? I am in absolute workout hell. Uh, I have not, I literally have used, I've, I've filled backpacks full of water bottles to create things to walk around with that are heavy. And, uh, I have a jump rope, I have bands and I have that. And I will say like, I've been to all of the targets and Walmarts and big fives before everything shut down. Every dumbbell over five pounds is gone. Uh, I, um, you know, and I will say one of my biggest regrets, and I don't know if Peter listens to this, but if he does, he'll laugh, is that after we <laughs> built that amazing gym at Suicide Squad, I bought all the equipment out of the gym and schlepped it all the way from Toronto to LA in hopes of, you know, putting some kind of big facility together out here. Of course, it ended up sitting in, in uh, storage for two years. And then when Peter opened up Pharaoh's, I sold it all to Pharaoh's. And I sit back and I look at this amazing space I have in my house now thinking, God, if I just would have kept all that fucking equipment, I would have a triple A level gym in my home. Uh, but I don't. And um, luckily, the, you know, the, the gym that I work with here in L.A. called Studio, they're doing at home workouts, which is kind of keeping me busy. Um, but uh, and I would, of course, be running around spending all the money I can to build a gym at the moment. But not the most responsible thing to do when Hollywood is, is pretty uncertain at the moment. So I wish I had the uh, resources to go do that at the moment. I'm, I don't think it'd be wise to do, but when this is over, I will definitely start spending some more time building a home gym for uh, in case this ever happens again. Cause it, it is a, uh, not a fun experience being stuck here with nothing. Well, you've, you've always been really good to me. I want to tell you personally, I've always really appreciated it. I am working on some things with a few companies right now. Um, Funny enough, COVID has really enhanced my career and Joe's as well, because all of a sudden people are trying to switch online. So yeah. uh, as part of my bargaining strategy with some of these companies, I'm going to try to get you a couple of care packages. Oh, so you're no that. longer in, in workout <laughs> hell. So some, if a freight truck shows up at your door, you know who. who Boy, with that, I, that would be a, a very nice welcome surprise, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. It, uh, where can people find you? learn about you, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I've got an Instagram. It's at Andy Horowitz, one uh, O-H-O-R-W-I-T-Z. And uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. And, and um, you know, um, I'm accessible if you want to, if anyone wants to ask me questions, you know, with DMs on Twitter and, and um, Instagram about the film business or questions, you know, I obviously can't answer some questions about films we're working on. You know, there are lots of people try to throw out, like, can you tell me what's happening in the Suicide Squad movie or what's going on with this? Those kind of questions, obviously, I can't answer. But anything about, you know, advice to break into the film business or um, questions about how movies are made, I'm happy to, you know, give my guidance as much as I can and help people through those, uh, those situations. Love it. Joe, you got anything else for uh, Andy? Uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for for everything that you've been involved in. I'm a huge fan of your work. I know how how hard it is to do what you do, and I, I just really appreciate it. And I'm I'm kind of fanboying over here that we've got an opportunity to connect. So uh, well, I, uh, I hope we can I, stay in touch moving forward. I appreciate that absolutely, and and um, you know thank you guys for doing what you do. I think so many people are turning to fitness right now to get themselves through this situation and. You know, I encourage everyone that's listening to this to, to get out there and, and sweat and keep your body moving because it absolutely will help you through this process. It really does. I think the worst thing you could do is sit on your couch and mope around that you're stuck in your house. And so, you know, the more you move and the more you sweat and the more you keep yourself moving, I will say you, you, you no doubt feel better and helps you get through this. No, for sure. Well, again, Andy, thank you. Uh, you're one of the kindest people I've met. You've always been down to earth and uh, really, really appreciate you. All right. Well, likewise, guys, I appreciate you having me on and uh, you know how to find me if you ever want to chat soon. Because you're the last of a dying breed.